welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Scott Brady, the award-winning game designer of Hughes and Cues, along with last year's hit, Boop. Scott, welcome to the binge. How you doing, sir? Doing all right. Thank you, James. That was an amazing intro. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, I only leave the best for someone of your caliber. It is it is great having you on this podcast. Uh, my gosh, where to start? First and foremost, uh, when I was reading your bio uh, and you said you'd only been doing game design for four years, it, it actually, I had to step back for a second to make sure that wasn't a typo. That shocked me. <laughs> Uh, how can that be possible that you've done two amazing hits, award-winning, and you've only been doing this for four years? It, luck, you know, first of all. I mean, it was a lot of it's right place, right time. Um, you know, I, I didn't get the design bug till much later in my hobby game career. I've been playing hobby games for, you know, well over a decade. And um, I just got motivated. I think like a lot of other designers start thinking, you know, maybe I could make something and didn't get serious about it till um, 2019, right before COVID hit. Was it COVID that kind of pushed you into that to say, now I've got this downtime, it's, uh, it's time to kind of hunker down or what was kind of the catalyst there? Well, so the first, my first game, Houston Cues was, was finished before COVID and finished and signed and actually in production, we were on press when COVID hit and, um, when you know of course that's a party game for three to ten players and so we were worried about you know how that was going to go over being everyone was locked down <laughs> and uh you know it's it still did fine you know it was adapted the publisher adapted it to play digitally but in that meantime yes covid did um you know motivate me because a lot of people were asking for two-player games at that time um, because of the lockdown, they didn't have large groups to play with. And that's yeah. when it came up with the uh, the original ideas behind Boop. Even like solo games exploded. I felt like obviously solo demand has been around, but right. really where you saw, I saw it take off is when COVID hit. And then just game after game, I'm seeing in the comments, is this available in solo? Is this available in solo? Seeing on Facebook groups, people saying, here's my homebrew version of a solo version of, you know, Azul or the different games. Um, it's interesting how, you know, events like this can really shape like an entire industry, Right. 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 It, it definitely did. I think it, so I think it did a couple of things. I think it's changed, you know, the demand in certain segments like solo and two player, but it also brought a lot more people into the hobby because they were looking for something that they knew that they could do since we weren't going outside or, you know, sports or anything. And, you know, I, from talking to publishers and retailers, you know, those were some of the best years they had had. And unfortunately, it's continued. Those people were introduced to the world of hobby games and uh, haven't, you know, forgotten about it now that the, you know, the restrictions have been lifted. Yeah, certainly, I think this movement towards tactile, right, engagement versus digital engagement, which obviously started with the whole hobby kind of moving forward and people moving away from kind of not moving away from electronics, but looking for kind of like a reprieve from electronics. But right. when you're in lockdown and your kids are in school 
and you're on Zoom calls all day with work and your kids are on Zoom calls with their teachers all day and then they're doing their homework on a computer. I mean, you just want to kind of put that to the side and say, okay, we're all here together in the same house as a family. Can we do something besides being on the electronics? And you kind of almost seen this resurgence and and certainly the sales in the industry, at least in the first year or so of COVID uh, skyrocketed, right? Like it was, it was some pretty good times (laughs) for some of the manufacturers. Yeah. yeah. I've had a lot of discussions with, with friends and family members about, you know, why the sudden surge of analog games compared to, you know, video games, which have been growing and growing since, you know, since the late seventies. And, um, you know, I, I, Think back onto when I first started playing video games on an Atari 2600. And, you know, at that time, multiplayer games were about uh, plugging in multiple joysticks, multiple paddles, whatever. And you all sat around the same TV and played the game. You know, video games today, you know, fewer and fewer of them are multiplayer. They're, you know, a lot of them are app based online. You get it, you hop in when you want to play, do a daily quest or whatever. Or if they're online, you're talking about the Call of Duties and things like that. Um, So you still don't have the in-person social gathering that we used to with video games. And I think that's where board games have kind of picked up on that, that void in the video game industry as those migrate more towards online experiences, um, but still solo in the home then board games are still the social connection, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, do you still, like, other than game design, do you have, like, another day job? Or have you transitioned out of that completely now? Or what were you doing kind of before all this? So my first career was actually in the printing industry. Hmm. And um, it was a company based in Los Angeles that manufactured um credit cards and ATM cards. And we were actually the company that made them, one of the companies that made them for the banks, for the schools, for their IDs. We actually made those physical pieces of plastic. And um, so that's actually where the game Hughes and Cues came from, was being in the printing industry and designing a game around my experience working with color and the color spectrum. Um I was going to say, it almost looks like a Pantone sheet, like one of those. Yeah, yeah. and that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what it's based on. The concept behind Hughes and Cues is based upon uh, what we did as printers before there were color matching systems like Pantone. Um, We would discuss with a customer, okay, what shade of blue, you know, this is all over the telephone, you know, there's no video at that time. Um, And they would say, well, I want a blue logo on my card. Okay. You know, there's lots of shades of blue. Can you describe what you're looking for? And then they'll start talking in abstracts, sky blue or blue jean blue or navy blue, which are still very abstract. And so that's how color agreements were, you know, done before matching systems were uh, in place. And so that's, I exploited that idea uh, to make cues and cues. You know, so you forget about the matching systems that are out there and it's all reverts back to how do we talk about color when we don't have a common piece to, to look at and share between us. That first prototype you did, was it literally taking one of your sheets from your, your like former work and placing it on the table saying, you know, I think I got a, a game idea here or. 
No, it was, uh, but it was very, um, well, both the first board and the, what ended up being the final board, both looked very much like the um, uh, color picker tool and like Adobe Photoshop. Yeah. Um, so I took something similar to that. I created a custom one, a couple custom ones, and then blocked it out to make each, each square a solid color. But when you step back and look at it, it still had this nice rainbow spectrum. Um, the original one was very linear, and there's pictures of it on um, on BGG in the uh, in the photo section for Hughes and Cues. You can see the original board, and it worked fantastic. But it also uh, made some colors pick more often than other colors. So mm. uh, redesigning it as a spiral that kind of goes around the board, so the spectrum, you know. Uh, goes along the edge and then goes lighter as it goes in was what ended up being the final product and what worked best. It's certainly a beautiful looking game when you see it on a table, right? Like it, uh, it's got that kind of visual uh, table presence right. Right. and then the scoring. So how did you like, did it naturally come to you? Was there a couple different iterations of, cause it, the concept seems to be pretty anchored in just the idea of, okay, we're going to, you know, have a game here where people are trying to guess, what color do I mean in your example here? What kind of blue, right? Is it a surf blue mm -hmm. or, or baby blue or whatever? Um, but then kind of the whole scoring mechanism and getting closest to the possible. How, how did you build kind of that out? You know, that I spent quite a bit of time on many different iterations of scoring. Um, you know, I had the idea that I wanted it to be a targeted base system where you were rewarded for being close. Um, I didn't want one person to guess more than one space because then I felt there'd be a lot of follow-on and clustering. So I gave rewards for being close, but I also needed to incentivize the clue giver to give a good clue. Yeah. Otherwise they just give a bad clue and everyone would miss and it's, it would go on. So there were a lot of different ways that I tried scoring and I eventually came up with what ended up being one of the simplest which was basically three, two, one, which is, you know, how many points you score based upon how close you were. And then just one day, you know, the, the thing that really changed the game and made it different was um, I had the two ideas. One was I wasn't going to reward the clue giver for uh, one point scores because it was close, but not close enough. Yeah. So that, that added an interesting twist, but then I ran into the problem. Well, it was fiddly to figure out, you know, who was close and who wasn't. And it just came to me one day, just literally out of the blue to do this square. I made a little paper um, template with uh, twos printed on the outside and ones printed on the inside or twos printed on the inside, ones printed on the outside and laid it over the board Um and it, it worked beautifully to delineate, okay, this is what the clue giver scores with, and this is what the you know what they don't score for. And that that little piece, yeah, made it all the way from pitching to final production piece. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that because typically when I see a, a game like that's been in prototype stage and then a publisher takes it, those are typically the kinds of things the publisher adds on. Uh, right. So I was wondering, I was like, oh, I wonder if he came up with that or if that's something that the, the publisher had added on. But it is quite clever because it's very quick, right? You slap it down right. uh, with the the actual color uh, answer in the center. 
Right. And bang, all your scoring is just easy there to, to see and counting up the, the pieces on the inside and so forth as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was this nice little reveal moment where we weren't just revealing all oh, this was my color. We're actually lassoing and a bunch of them and everyone's hoping that they're lassoed in the end of the square. So it added this little bit of tension as that as that piece comes down towards the board um, that just added that little, one moment of excitement to the end of a particular round. Um, and so I think it was unique with Hughes and Cues that because the board and that scoring piece, that is the game, right? I mean, everything else is um, in the player's head. You know, it's a word association game. There's not a lot of pieces to it. Um, it was important for me to successfully pitch it to have art and a concept as close to the final product because that was the game. Whereas so mm -hmm. many other games take a Euro game, the art is done secondary, usually by the publisher. As long as the mechanics are solid, the experience yeah. is solid, then they'll they'll theme it or put artwork on it as they see fit. But in this particular case, it was, I could not have, I don't think I could have sold it as just an idea without actually showing, okay, this is the board, um, this is the presentation or the table presence. Um, and that's what got the publishers to take a look at it. So how did you pitch it? So you end up getting the OP, uh, ended up publishing right. this game. Congrats on that. A uh, very large yep. company. Yep. Uh, I think what, I read somewhere half a million copies have been sold worldwide. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's not a small number. No, um, no. <laughs> how, how did you get that? How did that initial kind of yeah. connection happen? Because for your first game uh, mm -hmm. to get, to get signed with a big company like that, what was that process like uh, for you and, and how did you go about it? Yeah. So I kind of cheated. Um, my, my <laughs> wife has worked in the toy and game industry for almost right around 15 years and done um, online marketing through her uh, website for, you know, multiple companies. So over, over a decade, we had, you know, we had generated our own list of people that worked at these companies and had been going to Gen Con every year and Origins and, you know, developing a personal relationship with these publishers. For, for the um, opportunity to write about their games on the website. Yeah. And so when it came time to pitch, I was able to say, to give a nudge to someone we knew and said, hey, why don't you just take a look at this? You know, tell me what you think. So it was like a real soft pitch. And I did that in uh, 2019 at um, Geekway to the West with a couple publishers that I knew. And one in particular, um, Shane from Gray Fox Games uh, took a look at the game and said to me, he goes, absolutely, I will publish this, but I don't think you should let me. I think you need to look for a bigger company because this could be a, a million unit seller. Yeah. And of course, that caught me off guard, but I took his advice and took it to Origins. I had made some appointments using our contact list again with with the op, with Cosmos, with a number of other people, and um, actually left Origins with about seven companies interested in the game. So it was really just everything falling into place, you know, perfectly. I didn't have to, you know, go through speed pitching. I didn't have to make cold calls. I was lucky there. And then I was lucky that, you know, everyone saw the vision because of the prototype. And after some negotiation with a couple different companies, um, I ended up going with the op. Um, 
based upon some things that they promised or at least how they were going to market it. And uh, I have to say, I think I made, I definitely made the right choice because they've continued now, you know, it's three years later since it hit the market and um, they continue to put marketing dollars behind it, even though they've got other stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they continue to to push it. So definitely a right decision for me. It definitely has a uh, an evergreen vibe to it, the game, if that makes sense, right? Like yeah, yeah. and that's what they they have a line that they call their evergreen line, and includes yeah. um, telestrations, blank slate, cues and cues now, and then uh, Tapple just got a a resurgence for them in interest thanks to TikTok. Um, so that's part of their evergreen line now too. So those four games are the ones they continue to to market organically. How close is the final game now to that initial prototype that you had uh, you had pitched to them? Um, it's still pretty close. So the 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 theory and the concept is exactly the same. Uh, the board we ended up going with my second board, which is in the current form, and that I actually developed after I signed with them. So they signed hmm. it based on the first board, but I had I kept working. There was something about it I didn't like. I kept working on it and said, okay, I'm liking this one better. It's testing better, and they agreed. Um, the, the only things that they change, well, they changed three things about the game. They changed the name, which is very, very common. Mine was, uh, I had called it guess you no. and they, because <laughs> they work closely with Hasbro, they didn't want to get sued. <laughs> yeah. We, well, not get sued, but they have this nice relationship with them for their yeah. monopoly line. So it was one of those, you know, let's not poke the bear if we don't have to. So yeah. they give it their own name. Um, in my design, the uh, the pieces that you use are cones, like they are in the game. But for the scoring pieces, I had little cylinders, which represented the rods, which in our eyes are rods and cones. Mm. And so just for, for a manufacturing standpoint, it was cheaper just to go with all cones. So they eliminated the rods and went with the cones, which was, which was fine. Um, and then the last thing, they actually changed... Uh, they knew their market better than I did. So I didn't have any cards in the game. In in my version that I sold to them, you would um, think of a think of an item first that you wanted to describe, let's say Pikachu. And you would look at the board and you would find the color that you thought most closely represented Pikachu. And you would actually write those coordinates down on a dry erase thing. And... Um, than everyone else would guess like normal. So it was a matter of thinking of the item first and then selecting a color. So you were actually matching those two ideas. Um, they wanted to put cards in and assign a color to a player first and then have that player describe that color. So they kind of reverse the order in which the active player does things. Mm. Uh, and as it turns out, for the mass market, which is what they were going after, um, it was better to limit the active player to just four colors um, and then had to pick one of those rather than give them the entire spectrum of a board to go from. Yeah. So that was one major change that they made. I think it would have worked out fine either way. But, you know, for mass market, I think that was the right decision. Yeah, I think if they're non-gamers too, you can get kind of stuck in the for lack of a better word, you think about improv, right? Some people are good at improv, some are not. And uh, that can impact pacing, right? If somebody's trying to think, oh, I got to try to think right. of a good one here, right? Well, if you can kind of give them something to build off of, that might 
again for the layman, uh, help them get there faster, right? And uh, I think that's one of the hardest things is that as someone who plays hobby games, you know, as as for entertainment myself, it's it's difficult to kind of rewind things and think of okay, you know, what would someone who doesn't play anything other than Monopoly or Scrabble or Connect Four yeah. or something like that, what would they enjoy? And that's a extremely difficult thing to do, I think, as a designer is to kind of leave out some of your experiences and preferences when you're making a game. It's definitely uh, easy to try to over-engineer something. I had this actually at Origins in that same uh, room that we were in. And you you played one of my games. I just want to throw right. that out there too. Thank you yep. for your feedback yeah. and your, your daughter. I mean, you guys uh, had some great insights. We made some uh, changes to that game, which is Cities of Venus uh, Survivors, which is the sequel to Cities of Venus that's coming out next year. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, but in that room, I, I was floating around to other people's tables as well. And uh, there was a gentleman, I can't remember his name, but he had this beautiful little kind of bird card game where you're like removing rows and columns and it, it had a very simple mechanic to it. And when it got to feedback time, um, one of the play testers at the table started going like super deep about, well, you should try to add this and add this. And I finally just said, I got a quick question here. What is, who's the intended audience for this game? Because what you're saying right now uh, is super deep. And yes, for maybe the people in this room, that might be the way to go. Right. But I turned to the designer and say, who are you targeting? He's like, well, I'm just looking for the casual player like on a Sunday afternoon while they're sipping tea. Okay. Well, that stuff that was just recommended is probably not going to fit well in this game, right? Because you're going to lose the core audience that you're targeting. So knowing your audience, I think is kind of important in this regard when you're trying to pick, okay, how deep do you want to go in some of these mechanics, right? That's exactly right. I mean, it's, and I think that becomes more important after you uh, published your first or second game is yeah. now, you know, I think everyone's first game, they're designing what they know. And it, for me, it was about the printing industry and that, that color perception thing. Um, and I think everyone's got one in them based upon their own work experience or yeah. their life experience or whatever. But once you get past that, then you have to start considering whether you're publishing like you are or try to get another publisher to sign it. You have to start thinking more about your market and less about what you personally prefer because designers have to realize we're in the minority when it comes to the overall game market, right? Yeah. The, you know, the, the uh, a success on the hobby game market might be five or 10,000 units. Um, a failure in the hot, in the mass market is 50,000 units. Yeah. And there's a very big difference between the two when you're designing into what will appeal, not just the artwork, not just the theme, but the overall experience and getting people to, if they want to play it again, then they'll recommend it to their friends. But if they yeah. buy it, they play it once and they don't enjoy it, it's not going to get that word of mouth. And so, yeah, it's considering your audience and I'm not just, and we're not just talking about age audience oh it's for eight eight and up or four and up or whatever we're talking about the audience being that particular demographic whether it's based upon game experience or region of the world or any of the other different demographic things that we're looking at you know maybe it's religion based maybe it's mm -hmm. uh political based um all those things have to be considered you know when you're when you're designing the game not just theming it but when you know what goes into the game itself with Boop, where did this come from, this idea for Boop? I mean, it's an adorable game, by the way. Uh, absolutely looks just adorable and, and definitely uh, worth uh, all the awards you've won this past year on this. Where did the idea come from for this? So Boop came from the COVID, quite honestly. So I love abstract games. 
Yeah. And when people were um, clamoring for two-player games, I just started brainstorming. I came up with this cool mechanic that I had never seen done in an abstract game. And it's become known now as the shockwave mechanic. And, hmm. and if you refer it to boop, it's the boop mechanic. So when a piece is played, everything around it, you know, kind of explodes outwards, like a meteor hit the ground or a bomb or something like that. So I had this mechanic and I, and I wanted to design a game around it, a two-player abstract. And I did. I mean, it took the better part of a year to come up with a final product because it's, you know, an abstract on a small board like that, you know, when you think of like Santorini or Tac or some of the other more popular small that have a small grid, they're extremely difficult to design um, because yeah. to to get a balance in that small area is, is, you know, is virtually impossible. And I luckily came across the, a, a board size and a concept and, of course, the mechanic that worked. And I released it for free during COVID um, under the name Gekatai, which is Japanese for push away in a mm. pushback in a military sense. And um, that was my own personal gift to the world, if you would, you know, during COVID. And it started getting hundreds of downloads on BGG, um, started, you know, people internationally were making videos from it. You know, we started seeing them pop up from Russia, from Thailand. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, I pitched it and a couple of companies were interested, um, but none of them wanted to really take a chance on an abstract because, you know, the playing abstracts historically haven't done that well volume wise. And they definitely are a tough sell in mass market. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't until I stepped back, stepped back, spent another probably six months on it. Um, playing around with different themes like sumo wrestlers and and raindrops and anything that would make things explode outward. And then finally came up with, I built a little prototype bed um, with a bed skirt on it and had some cats 3D printed. And I'm like, you know what? This is perfect. It's cute. I think it's marketable. And I actually went back to one of the publishers who initially re rejected it as Gekatai and showed him what I had done. And he's like, yep, I can sell that. And, you know, the rest is history. They they signed it, um, did the art on it. They changed the name. Um, they My name of that game was Pounce House at the time. Pounce House? Pounce House, yeah, which was a cute, you know, I, I thought it was a I cute name. But yeah. during one of their play tests, one of the play testers commented, oh, I'm going to boop you off the bed. And it was like, Oh, wait a second. That's a good name. Boop. And then from then, that, that was what it was called. He, the publisher called me right away and said, what do you think of this name? And I argued that I really like my name, but I kind of <laughs> like the name better. So I'm fine with it. And, it, and did and they do the art or did you have any decision making in the art at all? Or is this like they reskinned it with their own artists? No, they reskinned it. So my prototype had a quilt for the bed, but it was a printed quilt on a regular board. And then I had actually like crepe paper for the prototype around the edge of the bed to represent a bed skirt. Mm -hmm. I wanted something that was three dimensional. Um, so it, it, it propped it up off the table. But I didn't think um, going with a soft board would be possible. 
quite honestly. I thought it would curve, the individual squares would bow too much, pieces would fall over. But um, uh, Smirk, Kurt at Smirk and Dagger, after talking with his manufacturer, they felt that yeah, they could reverse it. We'll just print the bed skirt and then actually include a quilt in the in the box, which is something that's you know never been done. Right. And enough, they they spent the longest time going back and forth with yeah. different interior materials, custom uh, uh, outside layers, and everything to get that board just perfect so it stayed flat um, to where people could still play it, you know, on that soft surface. Yeah, so, it's neat how you revert, you flip the box over, and that becomes now the kind of the bed that you put the quilt on, too, right? Bed frame, right? You flip the box over, that's the bed frame, and then the quilt goes on top of that. Yeah, yeah. super cool. Yeah. In the mechanic, too, of this, um, you know, three cats in a row or three kittens in a row, and then those then get kind of promoted up to become uh, a large right. cat. Right. And then once you get three large cats in a row, then that triggers your win. Um, right. How long did it take you to get to that? So you had the first mechanic of you know of the yeah. the uh, the shockwave mechanic, uh, what right. we call it the Scott mechanic, no. uh, pushing things <laughs> out. Um, then, how long until you got to that point of okay, three in a row, and then promoting them up, and then getting three more, kind of a thing. So the first version of, as Gakatai that I released for free was simply eight pieces each, and it was the first just to get three in a row. So it was a five to ten minute game. It's very brief. Yeah. Um, and, and it took a while to decide on what the actual winning condition was going to be. And that came from just a lot of play testing to see, can we get, can we require four in a row? Is three in a row too easy? You know, just testing different things for a win condition. And ultimately we came up with a simple three in a row, which is familiar with so many people because of tic-tac-toe. So I thought that yeah. you know, added to the marketability because you say, Hey, just got to get three in a row and everyone's familiar with that already. You don't have to explain area control or you don't have to explain action selection or anything like that. You just say three in a row. That's what you're trying to get. Um, and then we added a second window condition, which was get all your pieces on the bed. So it gave people two strategies to go for. And that's what I released for free. Um, going to the second version you know, that was, I created a second version of Gekatai that had that upgrade path to make it a longer game. Also released that for free on BGG. Um, some people preferred the shorter, some people preferred the longer. It was a nice little mix. And then when we finally licensed it, that both those rule sets are actually in the box. So mm. if, you, if you have boot, if you read the regular rule set, that's my original, I called it Gekatai Squared. That was my original. That's the game that got published. But the original Gekatai rules now became the kids' rules in boot. Oh, so cool. that whole process to create that whole thing was probably another, probably another four to five months to wow. go from go from the first Gekatai to the second Gekatai. Make sure that worked. What I find interesting here is, you know, clearly if if it's if it's skinned right and it's marketed right, abstract games can can do well. Um, right. I usually avoid abstract. So I'll, I've gone a number of pro spiels uh, where people have, you know, on the published come to me as a publisher mm -hmm. and say, Hey, I've got, I think this would fit within your portfolio. I usually stay away because as you said, they typically just today's day and age, people like when I was a kid, I grew up on chess, grew up on checkers, right. a lot of abstract type of games. Um, you don't see that as much in, in this next generation. 
And so you almost have to disguise it right (laughs) under like, you know, cute and cuddly and and skinned like you've got with, with boop here, you know, highly, highly abstract strategic game. uh, But cleverly kind of, uh, you know, cloaked in this, uh, this cute, adorable cat game. Right. So uh, kudos to you and uh, smirk and dagger from being able to find that kind of right mix. Yeah, that was our, that was our ultimate goal was, you know, we wanted the, the game to have the table presence to get people to, I, I will admit it, tricked into playing, right? And so they, oh, I'm going to play this cute cat game. And then all of a sudden, like three moves in, they're like, oh, wait a second. I got to pay attention to what's going on because this is a lot deeper than I anticipated. So that was our, our unadvertised goal. And I, yeah, I think we pulled that one off and hopefully... You know, I actually hopefully, you know, the the simplicity of it makes people appreciate abstract yeah. games again in general. Because again, like I said, those are my favorite as well, and I would love to see more good ones on the market. This could uh, be another evergreen, I'm sure. I mean, it's certainly trending uh, <laughs> again quite well, and yeah. uh, the number of awards behind this. Uh, kudos to you on that. Can you talk about the next stuff that you're working on at all? Like, I know as a designer, you kind of keep it under yeah. the. There's a couple things in the works, and I'll just go. I just mentioned a couple real briefly. So it's not the end of Boop. Okay. Uh, there's also there's also a couple things planned in the future. Um, some of them I can't talk about that are super exciting. I wish I could mention. I can mention that there is a um, another version slated for late next year, probably um, that is uh, Christmas themed. Um, so much like the Halloween theme from this year, it'll be a Which different boo. Game. <laughs> right? Yeah, it'll be, yeah Jingle Boop. I don't know what it's going to be yeah. as far as a name, but we had a lot of people ask for a Christmas theme version. So I've been working on something that will uh, be more different than uh, the Halloween, which was the base game plus a mini expansion. Um, so that should be coming out next year if all things go right. Um, I've got a card game coming out from Arcane Wonders that I'm super excited about that is a cooperative uh, inductive reasoning game where it's it's like playing Uno, but if you didn't know the rules to Uno, you have to figure out the rules before you can actually play. And I, that'll be an inexpensive $20 game probably that um, hopefully will uh, do well in mass also because i think it's uh approachable in that manner and um yeah so with the success of hughes and cues and boop i've been fortunate to um, have some people ask to co-design together so i've got a co-design coming out from wise wizard next year oh nice uh, another party it's a party game be the first in their line for a new imprint um co-design with danielle reynolds who's known for uh, her story and a number of other games that she worked on and um, uh, one a small dexterity game coming out from Indie Boards and Cards co-designed with a couple local designers to me that um, that'll be their first their first published game so it's 2024 is shaping up to be a busy year how far out do you plan so for Boop we're already planning for 2025 um that's we don't see any sign of that lighting you know getting any lighter in demand anytime soon every time a a shipment comes in it sells out and just we're counting them in you know two weeks at a time oh wow Um, we just can't 
just can't keep the base game in stock. And now it just got localized um, in Europe in three countries and in Thailand. So I I think it's going to continue to grow from here. Um, but as far as designing, I know it, you know, it, for most of my stuff from design to shelf date, you know, it's two to three years easy. Yeah. So, and you know, things that I'm working on today probably won't show up till 25 or 26. That's amazing. And it's really exciting times to be a designer, isn't it? It is. It is. Wow. Well, Scott, I want to wish you all the best in this oh, coming year. Uh, I'm obviously a big fan of your work and I'm very thankful for the time you even gave me at uh, Origins. It was very kind, uh, you and your daughter, uh, to, to sit down and, and spend some time with us on our game. And it's cool to see how you are giving back to the industry uh, in talking to other game designers and, and really kind of sharing the love around. So I want to thank you for that as well. And hopefully we catch you at the next Origins. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to see when your when your game comes out. Sounds good, my friend. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.